Today's reading is Mark 2, 23 through 3, 6. It can be found on page 924 of the Bibles in the seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some of the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me as we begin. Our gracious God, as we come into this space, we come from different places and experiences. Our journeys have been very different. And so in a group this size, there's always, and I'm sure there is this morning, some element of sadness being processed. Maybe brand new or maybe it feels like lifelong sadness. Uh, it's at the surface and it can't be pushed away. And others of us come and there might be happiness, a new job, a new relationship, uh, a new transition coming up very soon, a sense that you've answered prayers. Others of us may come confused, looking for answers. And some of us may come this morning sitting here wondering how we even got here this morning and feeling like, Uh, We wonder if it was a mistake to come. Is this really where we belong? And from all these places, um, the truth is we're all the same in that we're all in need of your grace. And so coming before you, we are all thirsty and hungry in ways that we, in some of us, we're not even really in touch with the deep needs of our hearts because we've covered over them, paved over them. So we ask that you peel back the layers, that we all might recognize that we're all more of a mess than we care to admit, but that in Jesus, we are all more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. And may we enter into that gracious message as you speak to us today. Amen. Um, One of the very first Sunday blue laws that came out that is on record that you can discover. I don't know if you've heard about Sunday Blue Laws, but you'll get the the sense of what these are. This is like one of the first ones. 
Uh, it was enacted in the colony of Virginia in 1610, and it read as follows. Every man and woman shall repair in the morning to the divine service and sermons preached on the Sabbath day. And in the afternoon, two services, by the way. Don't get any ideas. I like my Sunday afternoons. <laughs> and in the afternoon, to divine service and catechizing, upon pain for the first fault to lose their provision in the allowance for the whole week following. And for the second, to lose the said allowance and also be whipped. And for, and for the third, to suffer death. Yeah, huh? Sunday, Sabbath, it was taken very seriously. As you look into this and as you look into the history of early Protestant, Puritan-influenced America, you, you kind of look at it and go, wow, they're treating Sabbath as if it's a life and death issue. So then there's all these fun examples that to us, culturally today, they really do just seem funny or ridiculous, like we just can't make sense of it. In Plymouth, a man was sharply whipped for shooting fowl on Sunday. Another was fined for carrying a grist of corn home on the Lord's Day, and the miller who allowed him to take it was also fined. Elizabeth Eddy of the same town was fined in 1652 10 shillings for wringing and hanging out clothes. Uh, in 1670, two lovers, John Lewis and Sarah Chapman, were accused of and tried for, quote, sitting together on the Lord's Day under an apple tree in Goodman Chapman's orchard. <laughs> See? It's funny. And one of my... Uh, one of my uh, personal favorites, where to go? William Blagden, who lived in New Haven in 1647, was brought up, you know, brought to court, I guess, or whatever they would call it. He was brought up for absence from meeting, you know, from church. He pleaded that he had fallen into the water late on Saturday, could light no fire on Sunday to dry his clothes. That would be Sabbath-breaking. And so had lain in bed to keep warm while, only his, uh, while his only suit of garments was drying. In spite of this seemingly fair excuse, Blagden was found guilty of slothfulness and sentenced to be publicly whipped. So, there you go. I always wonder what, what Blagden was really like. I mean, maybe there's a whole backside of that. We don't know. You know. They had to deal with him all the time. Maybe he deserved it. I don't know. Um, just, I'm just kidding. Kind of. It's interesting. You, know, you look at this and you go, okay, this ancient grappling with Sabbath, what was going on. They're intensely serious, they're legalistic, and there's harsh, harsh, harsh consequences for Sabbath breakers. And you're brought in, really, if you paid attention to that reading from the Gospel of Mark, we're brought right into the same kind of thing that was going on in Jesus' day when his critics were criticizing his disciples for picking grain because they were hungry. They were just doing it on the wrong day. They were breaking one of the 39 prohibitions from the Mishnah, the ancient Jewish teachings about Sabbath. And we're going to keep things kind of brief today to give you a little more Sabbath today, but also because where this is all driving is not that you're going to be told what to do, but we need communally to spend time thinking and figuring it out. So my hope is that briefer sermon translates to being sent out with a little bit of a mission to grab the handout in the back and spend some time today 
considering what this ends up looking like for us. So let me just give you a couple nuggets about Jesus' response and a few other little things, and then we'll, we'll move on. So Jesus' response essentially comes, the real heart that I want to focus on of this is in 20, verses 27 and 28, where Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Um, and then that sort of ends that interaction for the first part of that story. So two things, really. There's, it, to summarize, there, it's, it's the Sabbath is for you, and secondarily, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. How do we make sense of this stuff? Basically, the first part, Sabbath is for you, is Jesus speaking out against getting it backwards, which is the thing that you notice about all those stories of early Puritan America, basically getting it backwards. There's an old quote from, from preachers. Preachers used to say in the time of the Puritans that was if somebody was transacting business on, say, Saturday night, because that was sunset, they were supposed to start Sabbath. Um, the, the quote went, um, well, that is stealing time from the Sabbath. And you see right there the sort of getting it backwards. Is Sabbath something that you can steal from? Is, is Sabbath something that you are serving? It, or to put it probably more, more accurately, is God needing you to celebrate Sabbath for him? Is there a list of things he wants you to do and if you don't do it, you know, he's sort of in a deficit and doesn't know what to do because you haven't kept Sabbath and so we need to sort of police this whole thing and make sure everybody does what God or the Sabbath needs of us? Of course, you, you sense that's getting it backwards somehow and Jesus is trying to flip that around and say, the Sabbath is for you. And as soon as you start to miss that, you're way off base with what this is all about. And so it doesn't make sense, really, if the Sabbath is for you, that someone might get upset or angry that another person isn't you know, following Sabbath. That person's breaking Sabbath. That person's not doing Sabbath right. It doesn't make sense that that would create anger or frustration. It may be, if you understand Sabbath right, it may be appropriate to feel a sense of a little bit of sadness or um, um, in solidarity with them, a sense of sadness or hurt that, wow, it's, I love this person and they've closed themselves off from all of the blessings that Sabbath gives to them and life would be so much richer and filled with those blessings if they would open up the door to it and enter into it. Maybe that would be more of an appropriate way to look at it, which also sort of begs the next question. What are those blessings of Sabbath? What are we saying Sabbath gives to you? Well, that's where Jesus' second sentence comes in. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's one of those uh, statements, and you should, you should run into a lot of these if you are looking at the Bible and reading stories about Jesus and you're really paying attention. There should be many times where you, you read a story like this and you say, who does he think he is? Because Jesus, when he says the word son of man, it's a self-referential term that he uses often, you'll notice. He's talking about himself and he's saying he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? And he's already, just for, because I know some of you need these kind of little Bible scholar nuggets to take home. It's not a good sermon if I don't include a couple. So, so here's your one for the day. 
Jesus has already built up to this a little bit, foreshadowed it, telegraphed it a little bit. When he, his first response was, okay, you have criticism of me. Let's talk about what David and his companions did. Well, who does he think? What is he doing? He's putting himself in parallel with the ancient, iconic king of Israel and his companions? He's, he's putting himself on par with that and comparing with that? But then he takes it up a notch further in that first sentence when he says, starts talking about what the Sabbath is for and whether it's for people or people for the Sabbath. Now he's gone even further back beyond not just David, not back to Moses, the giver of Torah, but beyond that all the way back to creation. Who does he think he is? He's the kind of person who can go back and say, um, as the New Testament talks about him, I was there. It was created by me and for me and through me. Jesus can go back and explain to you what the Sabbath was for in the first place. And then the, the conclusion is what he says next is that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So there's your little nugget, Bible study nugget, but what do we do with these things? The Sabbath is for you. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Basically, you, you wrap these things up together and what you have is a picture of Sabbath as, as such. The Sabbath is something where you open up yourself to Jesus being more present and having the chance to surprise you with how he might be Lord for you. But there's a sense in which the Sabbath-keeping part comes in. You've got to open the door for that. You've got to tangibly, you can't just have good intentions or say, oh, I like that, I agree with that. It's got to at some point say, how am I going to open that door? Let me look at that uh, equation a little more, a little in a different way, kind of paint a picture of it um, this way. Um, Las Vegas gets 90% of its water from a lake called Lake Mead. In fact, I do have a couple slides. You want to hit the first one? This is Lake Mead. And Lake Mead, maybe you, if you're a news buff, you know that Las Vegas is scrambling because Lake Mead's water level is shrinking. One of the two intake pipes that takes water uh, into Las Vegas is about to be above the water level. So Las Vegas is rushing to build a third intake pipe, which is a massive operation. It involves sending concrete down 650 feet underground. It involves a massive drill that has to drill a hole, a giant hole three miles long, a tunnel. And it's going at a rate of one inch per minute and hoping to be finished by 2015, and it's going to cost over $817 million. And Las Vegas has shown that they, can, that they take water as a life and death issue. Over the last 10 years, um, they've figured out how to handle their water. So now they reuse 93% of the city's water. They've put up $2 million to get people to rip up their lawns, their water-thirsty lawns. They've added in the last 10 years 400,000 people and at the same time cut their water use by 33%. So, you see how the water they need for their city to live is, they're taking it very seriously. The project that they've taken on, the organization, the intentionality to build this intake pipe Check out the next uh, graphic just to give you a sense of the one they're building, that third one underground. So Sabbath is like a big intake pipe that you build 
in your life that you construct so that the, what we talk about a lot around here, one of my favorite phrases, the living water, the grace of Jesus, the gospel is coming into your life, that you have access to it, that you have a place in your life where that water comes in. Imagine you're walking around in a desert, just another quick picture, and you find these people, you're deadly thirsty, and you find these people huddled around a faucet, and you say, oh my gosh, how'd that get here? What are you guys doing? And they say, well, we're always walking around here, and so finally we found where the water source was, and we built a hose to right here, and, and we just turn on this faucet. We come here regularly because we needed to live, and you go, duh, yeah, of course you would do that if you're walking around in the desert, and friends, life without God is like walking around in the desert. It takes great intentionality, it takes great focus and work to build in the intake pipe for grace to come in. How are you doing on that? Consider your own life, where the intake pipes are, sort of your own self-assessment with that. In many ways, I started out talking about the Puritans. In a minute, you know, you can, you can take those little examples of getting the Sabbath wrong and point out the fault in it. But in many ways, I'm very jealous of, as I think about my life and my own need for Sabbath, and as I look back and see that community, those communities or Jewish communities who have Sabbath, rich Sabbath practices that are just there in place as a part of the rhythms of life, I'm jealous. Because we live in a culture that leaves no time and no room for God to actually work. And I think, well, at least they have a sort of a community-built system of Sabbath. And I think we need to assess ourselves. And I think it's going to take a lot of work. <laughs> I think it really takes work. So I suggest that we that we go about that work. Let me just give you a couple, couple pictures of it, of where I think it can end up, inspiring, hopefully inspiring pictures as we close. This is a, a picture of Jewish, celebrating the Jewish Sabbath by Susanna Heschel as she writes the, the um, introduction to the work that her father did called The Sabbath by Abraham Heschel. So his daughter describes how Sabbath blessed her. I want you to imagine that maybe someday you'll have kids or you have kids now and that they would talk about what you did in life grow, growing up. They would talk about it fondly the way she talks about it and they would say, we did that. I remember my parents saying, we did that because we love Jesus and we want more of Jesus in our life. Or imagine that you could look back on your childhood and say something like this. Friday evenings in my home were the climax of the week as they are for every religious Jewish family. My mother and I kindled the lights for the Sabbath, and all of a sudden, I felt transformed, emotionally and even physically. After lighting the candles in the dining room, we would walk into the living room, which had windows overlooking the Hudson River. Facing west, and we would marvel at the sunset that soon arrived. The sense of peace that came upon us as we kindled the lights, was created in part by the hectic tension of Friday afternoons. Preparations for a holy day, my father often said, was an, as important as the day itself. During the busy mornings, my mother shopped for groceries, and in the afternoons, the atmosphere grew increasingly nervous as she cooked. My father came home from his office an hour or two before sunset to take care of his own preparation, 
And as the last minute of the work week came to a close, both my parents were in the kitchen, frantically trying to remember what they might have forgotten to prepare. Had the kettle boiled? Was the black covering the stove? I don't know if I said that right. Was the oven turned on? Then suddenly it was time. 20 minutes before sunset. Whatever hadn't been finished in the kitchen, we simply left behind as we lit the candles and blessed the arrival of Sabbath. Our meal was always the same. Our, our chalas came from our local bakery, and my mother made chicken soup, roast Cornish hen, salad, and vegetables. Hala, is that how it is? Thanks. For dessert, my father would peel a golden delicious apple, trying to keep the peel in one piece, and we would share apple chunks. My mother was not an enthusiastic cook, and my father was always on a salt-free diet, so the food was not thrilling. Still, at the beginning of every meal, my father lifted his fork, looked at me, and said, Mommy is a good cook. <laughs> Sabbath. Or I have to end with the Puritan Sabbath because I started with it. And this, please, please take one of these worksheets. There's enough for all of your households to have one. And this is what I want you to use for brainstorming Sabbath together, not alone together with others, because we need each other in this. And so on here, you'll find this little description of the Puritan day of rest. And I'll just talk about the afternoon part, because you heard me say earlier, two worship services, one early in the morning and one uh, at 2 or 3 p.m., depending on the season. The two or three hours between Sunday morning and afternoon meetings afforded opportunities for refreshment and relaxed conversation. People visited in neighbors' houses during the break. By the end of the 1600s, most parishes had built a small hall or designated a school or even a tavern to accommodate their rural residents, commonly called Sabbath houses. These buildings quickly became Sunday social centers. People drifted in and out, circulating among the public buildings and the homes of friends and relatives. Sabbath houses were expected to be quiet, befitting the serious nature of the occasion. But they were always heated in the cold weather, and stoves were provided to warm the food that families brought. Friends, let's consider Sabbath. Let's pray. Our gracious God, would you help us by your Holy Spirit, because we do need so much help, to consider what it looks like to build together greater intake pipes to receive your grace, to live in your grace to give space, whether it's a half hour on a Friday night, whether it's half a day on a Saturday, or whether it's all of Sunday, some space, some amount of time where we unbusy ourselves and we let you have your way with that time. We let you show us how you need to be the gracious Lord, making your grace appear in more and more aspects and areas of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.